Let me invite you uh, to open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. We're in Matthew chapter 20. Uh, we'll, we'll start in at verse 20 through 28 here in a few moments. In case you missed it this past week, Wednesday was Valentine's Day, but it also happened that Valentine's Day fell on the first day of Lent. Um, so today we are, we are in the Lenten season. This is our first Sunday of Lent. And that means that uh, during this, these next several weeks, from now until the end of March, we are, are going to be anticipating Holy Week, anticipating Easter, and, and we're sort of, as a, as a church worldwide, rehearsing during this Lenten season a journey that Jesus took to Jerusalem with his disciples. In, in all of the Gospels, there's sort of this intentional pivot at some point in the Gospel where we're told Jesus goes to Jerusalem, goes up, um, knowing that, that Passover is starting soon, but knowing that on this particular occasion... On that year, Jesus wasn't just going up to any feast, but that Passover would represent a series of trials for him. His, his betrayal, his arrest, and ultimately his crucifixion. Lent reminds us how Jesus chose to intentionally lay down his life for us. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't a surprise to him, right? He did this on purpose, and he, he journeyed to Jerusalem with that goal in mind. From where we stand, uh, kind of in the timeline of salvation history today, right, we can look back and we know that, that following that journey to Jerusalem, following even the crucifixion and the cross, that there was an Easter resurrection waiting for Jesus. But for the for the band of disciples that followed Jesus on, on that first journey into Jerusalem, that first walked that road with him, there was a lot that they didn't comprehend, a lot that they didn't understand about what that road entailed. One of my favorite uh, commentaries on the book of Matthew is written by someone named Dale Bruner. And he talks about how that, that journey to Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel it's sort of like a series of ups and downs. And he says that if, if we look carefully at the gospel there in that journey section, that there are three separate times that Jesus pulls the disciples aside. And he specifically, Bruner says, takes them down into the valley of his suffering. Okay. Jesus wants them to understand that for him to be Messiah means an ordeal, means a trial, means a sacrifice awaits him. He takes them down into these valleys and he explains that the road ahead for him, but, but also for them, will not be an easy one. Bruner says, though, that every time Jesus does this in Matthew's gospel and also in, in Mark, every time he says, hey, this is what's coming, the very next thing the disciples do, Bruner says, is to march right back up a mountain of their own glory. The next thing they do is, is they talk about or they boast about the, the victory and the power and the glory that awaits them when Jesus becomes king. 
It's, it's almost like a game of telephone, right? The game we play when we're kids. And Jesus is saying, my disciples must count the cost. But by the time it gets to the disciples, what they hear is, my disciples will have no loss. Right? There's, there's this incredible disconnect between what Jesus says and how the disciples respond to that message. And I think it probably bears testimony to the fact that when we hear words from Jesus that we don't like, that we don't want to hear, we ignore them. We put them aside. We reconfigure them so that they're more to our liking. But as we look at this passage in Matthew 20 about about Jesus being a servant, choosing to lay down his life, my prayer is that, that we would hear that and also understand how we might offer our own lives in return. Let me pray for us as we look at the word of God together. Lord Jesus, I pray that your word would, yes, give us comfort and consolation, that you are our king, and there is no other king like you, but that it would also give us courage to follow you into the kind of kingdom you desire to bring, to choose to be a servant choose to surrender our need for control, even our our own need for comfort and glory and greatness. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth as I preach and teach, may the convictions and meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Sorry, you'll have to bear with me. I'm losing my voice today talked about the the ups and downs of of Jesus and his disciples on that road to Jerusalem. Just before our passage today in Matthew 20, Jesus gives the last of these these valley warnings, these explanations about the suffering that will await him. And in Matthew uh, 20, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says this, right? He pulls the disciples aside. He says, right, we're on our way up to Jerusalem. But when we get there, the Son of Man will be betrayed to the religious leaders and scholars. They will sentence him to death, and then they will hand him over to the Romans for mockery and torture and crucifixion. Right? That's it's a difficult word to hear from Jesus. But, but true to fashion, the very next thing we get in verse 20 is a request from the disciples for VIP status in the kingdom. He's going to Jerusalem to purchase with his own life. Right? There's a, a sort of tone deafness here. But let's, let's look at that passage together, starting in Matthew 20, verses 20 and following. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, His mother came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. 
You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or at my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. The story sounds like a little bit of ancient helicopter parenting, right? What is this mom doing here, sort of slipping Jesus her son's resumes? Jesus, do me a favor. The mother of Zebedee's sons may, may seem out of place here to us, but if you actually look through the Gospels, we, we understand that she is no stranger to Jesus. She, she's actually part of this larger group of disciples that are following him. In fact, when they get to Jerusalem on, on Good Friday, this mother will be among the few faithful female disciples who remain there throughout the day, throughout Jesus' crucifixion, and receive his broken body back to prepare for burial. This isn't just any old person. The mother of Zebedee's sons, just like her sons, has, has given up everything to follow Jesus. So her commitment is not in question. But as, as Jesus, this, this text says, is getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, the road is, is shorter and shorter till they arrive, she seems to sense that, that now is her chance to ask Jesus a favor about the future. Jesus, when you set up your kingdom, I was, I was hoping maybe you could make my sons your, your chief of staff, your trusted advisors. Jesus, how about putting one of them at your right hand, putting the other at your left? Right? Especially, you know, bear in mind the stuff that, that Peter has said and done recently, right? He's not your guy. Maybe that's part of this conversation. Jesus, how about you open some doors for their future? Now, of course, given the context, given Jesus' attempt to explain what his kingdom is about just before this, makes all of this sound, again, pretty tone deaf. But if, but if you and I can set aside our cynical impulses for a moment, we might also see that this is a mother asking for her two children to be as close to Jesus as possible. That's a, that's a good thing. It's a healthy ambition. And like any good parent, she is also seeking some assurances from Jesus, right? Assurances about the comfort of her children, provision for her children. She desires their well-being into the future after she is long gone. Right? How many times have I asked for the same sorts of things for my family? for my kids. And if, if we're honest, these favors that she's asking Jesus for probably show up in every disciple's prayer at some point in time. Jesus, 
I want to follow you with, with all of who I am. But as I follow you, could you lead me into a good job? Jesus, could you, could you lead me into home ownership someday? Could you lead me into a clean bill of health for me and my family? Jesus, could you do me a couple of favors? Or at the very least, promise me that, that the really bad stuff, the really hard stuff, won't come my way. Right? I think all of us, if we're honest, have, have prayed prayers like that. We all hope and we all imagine that the road Jesus is leading us down is uncomplicated. I think that's, that's natural. That's, that's part of our human nature. But in verse 22, Jesus responds not only to the mother of Zebedee's sons, but I think to all of us when he says, point blank, you don't understand what you're asking. Don't know what you are asking for. As Jesus unpacks that statement. He explains that, that the kingdom that he is coming to establish doesn't run on titles, it doesn't run on favors. It's not, I do this and he does that for me. It's a kingdom predicated both on sacrifice but also on the sovereign goodness of God. Jesus knows that hard things happen to good people. Sometimes really hard things happen to really good people. The New Testament is full of evidence. And Jesus says, for me to promise you otherwise, to give you assurances otherwise, is not my place. That's for the Father to decide. It's for me and for you to trust the Father with. And then Jesus says something that I think seems a bit unusual. He says, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? What does Jesus mean? What cup is Jesus talking about? This morning, uh, Jess Cordemanche has offered to share part of her own Jesus story. And, and some of that story has come as she's reflected both on the cup that Jesus speaks of here in his own life, in this passage, but also the cup that God has given her to drink from as well. So Jess, would you come up and share with us now? The question of Jesus can you drink the cup that I am to drink, is a question that I've been thinking about a lot in the past couple of years. Last year, I read a book by Henry Nouwen called, Can You Drink This Cup? Nouwen takes the scriptures that Pastor Dave just read from Matthew 20, verses 20 to 23, and reflects upon the question that Jesus asks to the mother of James and John, can you drink the cup that I am to drink? The cup that Jesus was referring to in this question, of course, was the cup of suffering that he was about to drink, the cup that he pleaded with the Father to take from him on the night of his betrayal at the Mount of Olives, and the cup that he ultimately drank to the fullest as he hung on the cross. Nowin also encourages readers to reflect upon the cup of life that we've all been given, and he does that through three phases that I wanted to um, just share with you all this morning. 
So the first one, if you take your cup that you've been given in this life, is to hold the cup. So put both hands around the cup and gaze into it and ask yourself, what am I given to drink? What's in my cup? What are the joys? What are the sorrows? What are the good? What are the hard things? The second part is to lift your cup. Lifting the cup is an invitation to affirm and celebrate life together. It's about having a circle of trustworthy friends where you feel safe enough to be intimately known and called to a greater maturity by lifting your cup and sharing life's hard things and life's joyful things. The third part is drink the cup. We gradually befriend our reality and look with compassion on our joys and sorrows. We move beyond our protest, put the cup of life to our lips and drink it slowly, carefully, and fully. So hold the cup, lift the cup, and drink the cup. Can you drink the cup that I am to drink, Jesus asks us. Can we embrace the joys and the sorrows that come at us day after day? I've had a long and hard gaze into my cup over the past few years. Many of you know, and many of you don't know, that in June of 2022, our son, Maddie, our now seven-year-old, was diagnosed with moderate autism spectrum disorder. Autism is a developmental disability caused by differences in the brain. Though relieved to finally have some answers as to why so many things had been challenging, the diagnosis brought in me a great anxiety and depression as I tried to wrap my mind around the ways that our family operates differently. My parenting journey with a child with a disability brought me to my knees many of days with grief, exhaustion, and despair. It also sent me on the great heights of deep pride, joy, and love for this human who shows up in a neurotypical world day after day, a world in which he lives but that does not always function in a way that feels safe or right to him. It's a journey I sometimes don't have words for how devastating and rewarding it is all mixed together. The first year following his diagnosis, as I gazed into my cup, I protested and I was angry and grieved. I began lifting my cup to my close friends around me, sharing vulnerably the joys and the sorrows. I cried, raged, and sat quietly on the days I had nothing to say and shared stories about what our days look like at home. Around the year mark of the diagnosis, so last spring, I felt like it was time to start wrapping my hands around the cup and lifting it to my lips to drink it fully down to the dregs. I felt like it was time to accept what was in my cup. My story of Jesus is this. One day, as I was contemplating where I was at in this image of the cup, I had a picture of Jesus coming to me. His face was good and kind and trustworthy. And he handed me my cup. I lifted my hands to receive the cup from him. 
and I now gaze into my cup a little bit differently. It's not haphazard that my cup is filled with these things. It was handed to me by Jesus, who is good and kind and trustworthy. Because I feel like my cup is given to me by Jesus, I feel like I can drink it. I'm comforted to see Jesus raise his cup to the Father in the garden and honestly and vulnerably struggle with what it means for his path ahead. I'm convinced that the same intimacy that Jesus had with the Father that allowed him to say, not my will but yours be done, is that same intimacy that's available to me and available to you, and that gives me strength to drink my cup. Thank you. Thank you, Jess. Thank you for sharing the ways that Jesus has been with you on that journey, both the sorrows and the joys that are, are part of the cup he's given you. And I think I can say for all of us that we're grateful for the ways he's connected your family to the life of this church. Um, yeah, we're grateful for you and for Maddie and, and for the rest of your family. As we think about that, that image, I want to finish briefly by reading the last five verses that are part of this story in Matthew 20. And then, then finish with a time of prayer. I don't know what's going on with my clicker. Can you move us there? There we go. This is Matthew 20, verses 24 through 28. It says that when the ten heard about this, when they heard about James and John and, and their mother's request for a favor, they became indignant with the two brothers. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give away his life as a ransom for many. Just as we see at the end of this story, I think in, in our own lives, we notice a tendency for us to compare our cups with one another. Right? To think privately, man, I, I wish I had that cup to drink. Or to feel, Jesus, why is my cup so full of hard things? As Jesus hears them arguing, as he sees the disciples quibbling about right, who deserves what, Jesus calls them together in verse 25. I, I almost picture a, a mom or a dad with kids who are arguing, right, and say, hey, Cut it out. Listen up. And I think what Jesus goes on to say when he has them gathered together is this. Not even the king in this kingdom chooses his cup. Not even the king chooses his own cup. Right? Other kingdoms, they give out favors and prestige according to rank. And so if, if anyone could, could pull rank in this kingdom, it would be Jesus. But Jesus says, in my kingdom, life and blessing flow when we give our lives away, when we lay them down. 
Jesus invites them to consider how he has been among them and how he has served them and how he will serve them. One of the ways I think that we can serve one another and also serve God is to contemplate the cup he has given us to drink with prayer, with humility, and ultimately with obedience. We see Jesus do that in this Lenten journey and in Holy Week, which, which is coming. Right? When Jesus wrestles in Gethsemane with the cup the Father has given him, the cup of his passion, his suffering, his sacrificial death, we're told that Jesus ultimately accepts that cup so that his life might be a ransom for many others. And so today I want to offer us all just a brief opportunity to prayerfully consider that question. Can you drink this cup I'm giving you? I want to invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And if you'd like, maybe even to cup your hands in front of you on your lap. As though you're, you're holding your life and your cup before God. And just in a few moments, I want to walk through those, those three steps that Jess just shared with us. First, I want you, as you hold your cup before God, to consider what he has placed in it today. What joys are present in the life you hold before God. But also what challenges, what struggles are in your cup. Just take a few moments to notice those things in the presence of God. Hold your cup. So you can consider those things, continue to have your eyes closed. Let me invite you, if you're comfortable, just to lift your cup a few inches up before you. And express in prayer to God how you feel about this cup you've been given. What are you rejoicing in, but also where does that cup feel too bitter to drink, too heavy to hold? And would you just honestly express those things in prayer to God? Do you lift that cup before him? Finally, what would it look like to ask God for strength to help you drink this cup? What would it look like to continually bring this cup before Jesus, maybe especially in this Lenten season, so that you're not, you're not alone in holding these things, but you're inviting Jesus onto that road with you? Let me pray for us together. Lord Jesus, we hold our lives before you, our cups before you. We lift them into your presence. And we trust that you are one who has walked this road before us. You know what it is to suffer difficult, immensely difficult things. But we're also told that it was for the joy that was set before you that you endured the cross. Lord, we pray that you would enter into each of our lives, into the life we share together as one body, 
that you would impart strength and wisdom and consolation. That you would give us resolve for obedience. The choice to keep following you, to keep walking with you. Would you give us the encouragement of doing that with one another? And Lord, we pray that as we continue to offer those cups to you, that you would bring great joy, great beauty, great life from our lives, from the life of this church body. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.